Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. As was said before from the Bible College of South Australia, um, I won't say much about that now, but as you head out, there's a table with all our literature on there and you can learn who we are, what we do. Our core business is training men and women for gospel work of all different types, uh, equipping you in Bible theology and, theology and ministry. And so you can have a look at some stuff there, particularly have a look at our upcoming open day um, and whether or not you'd like to come for a class, uh, check out what we do. But I'll leave that there for you to look at later. What I want to look at now with you is what we've just heard read from the book of Revelation. It's a kind of eternal question really, isn't it? Where is the world headed? Where's everything going? And, And I think this question is, kind of becoming a bit more forward in the last couple of years and even in the last six months more people are asking this. It used to be thought in the West in the Enlightenment period that where we're going is obvious. We're heading towards a time of utopian time where society will become what it's always been meant to be and that'll happen through the progress of liberal democracy and as liberal democracy advances uh, people will come to realize that uh, we can love each other well, look out for each other well, we don't need religion, uh, and we'll build a great society where everyone's valued and cared for and all our problems are dealt with. In the last couple of years, though, that's just been challenged afresh, hasn't it? That is, we've had a pandemic that's killed millions of people around the world. It's locked us up. It's done things like disrupt our supply chains, and Western liberal democracy is not saving us from that. We have a war in Europe, for goodness sake. The the Cold War has effectively restarted. We thought this wouldn't happen, and and it could be worse than that. We don't know. We now have people around the world with major difficulties getting hold of food. This has always been a problem, but now even more. We're finding that there's a, a global food crisis. Not a shortage. God has given us plenty of food, but getting the food to the people. For those of us here, we we realize there's this issue of our economy, uncontrolled inflation, a potential global recession could be really terrible for lots of people for a long time. We're seeing the rise and rise of China, which in itself, China's just another country in the world, but it has a very, very different way of looking at the world. the western part of the world is wondering how do we actually negotiate that and deal with that. We have more and more people in the world now who think democracy is not the best way. Surveys done in western countries of younger people asking them what they think of democracy, they're kind of ambivalent, half-hearted. It's okay, but maybe there's a better system. We have The Christian faith, which so kind of characterized, again, Western nations for so long, really now being marginalized. Uh, People dropping away from signing off the form that says they're a Christian on a census or something like that. Numbers are plummeting in churches. And not only are people abandoning the faith, people are growing more and more hostile to it. Now, what I'm not doing now is interpreting all of this as signs of the imminent end. I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, Uh, I'm not saying that. I also think it's a bit of an arrogant way to think. 
It's a very, again, wealthy Western way to think. Oh, our lives are not going the way they have for the last 50 years. It must be the end of the world. Well, I'm sure people who are in developing countries and who are poor and starving and have been for generations think, well, this is just how it's always been, friends. However, I think what we can say is it seems like perhaps the post-World War II global order is being rattled at the moment. And where we thought that was going towards this, this utopian end of history, to steal Francis Fukuyama's phrase, doesn't seem necessarily to be where we're going now. So where's it headed? Where's the world going? Well, of course, I can't tell you in geopolitical terms. I don't know. But Revelation tells us where the world is going big picture, finally, fully, every culture, every people, every tribe, every language, every nation. We know where history is going to arrive. And it says it's going to arrive in two places, and we see these in Revelation 15 and 16. History is heading towards judgment. It's also heading towards worship. Judgment and worship. I want to have a look at both of these things this morning as we just look over these chapters again or look at some of the things in them. And uh, I want to start uh, in reverse. We'll look at worship first and then judgment. But just a quick word about uh, the shape of the book of Revelation. I'm sure you know this if you've been studying it here at church or uh, in Bible study groups perhaps, just to orient us back into the book. Uh, You might know that chapters 1 through to 16 uh, really capture the period of time after the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, and right up until kind of the last days of history. So that's kind of now. So chapters 1 through to chapter 16, that's kind of the world we live in now, this period. So we're getting in now chapters 15 and 16 to the end of Revelation treating this part of history. Then chapters 17 to 20 of Revelation really deal with God's final victory over evil, and I take it you'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. And chapters 21 and 22 are the great picture of the new heaven and the new earth. But in chapters 1 to 16, where we are now, uh, chapters 16, sorry, 6 to 16 have this kind of recurring cycle of what's going to happen this time. And we just get this repeated pattern. You see it again and again and again, reinforcing and filling out this picture of these days between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the end of all things. And in 15 and 16 that we've just read, it is these times of judgment and worship. Times of judgment and worship. That's what we're learning about now. I just have to acknowledge that I uh, stole some of my notes for this from uh, one of my colleagues at work, Dr. Chris Fresh, who's smart and has thought about these things. So uh, lots of what I might say, you can credit to him, as well as anything I say that's a mistake, that's his fault too. Notice in uh, chapter 15, verse 1, it gives us this hint we're now going to be talking about judgment again. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. This is what most of chapters uh, 15 and 16 are about, these last plagues, these judgments of God, the, the final conclusion to God's judgment. But then in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 15, we read about worship. We read about this great time of worship. And you might not actually think that the book of Revelation is a book about worship. When I say it's a book about judgment, you go, oh yeah, I know, there's there's beasts and there's destruction and there's all that sort of stuff. But have you ever thought about Revelation as a book of worship? 
it's actually got the theme of worship laced through it. It recurs over and over again. We see that there's worship happening in lots of ways. In some cases, we learn what true worship looks like contra false worship. Those two things are put before us. In some places, we just have great descriptions of the worship and the praise that God's people and even the angels bring to him. It's full of that. In chapters 13 and 14, that are just before where we are now, we have these uh, descriptions, this uh, outline of people worshipping the beast. The beast being the false Christ. You might know that in the book of Revelation, it's all about counterfeits. We have the counterfeit trinity. So instead of Father, Son and Spirit, we have uh, Satan and the beast and the false prophet. They're the counterfeit and we're, they're, they're sucking us in to not worshipping the true trinity but this fake trinity. That's what you see in chapters 13 and 14. But then you get to chapter 15 and we see people not worshipping Satan and the beast and the false prophet. Not worshipping the false God but worshipping the true God. It's the right response to the true God and the true King. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You might know Moses from the Old Testament, uh, from the book of Exodus onwards. Moses is the one who led God's people out of slavery under the Pharaoh, you know, through the Red Sea, all that sort of stuff. He was their saviour, their deliverer, their salvation. And of course, he was just a foretaste of the Lord Jesus the true saviour. He didn't save people from slavery under Pharaoh, but who saved people from sin and slavery and bondage to that which destroys souls and ruins us for eternity. So this is really a song of salvation. It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And it's really just praising them, isn't it? Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, those deeds of salvation. Just and true are your ways, King of the nation. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? You alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. People just praising God for who he is, what he's done. The God of Moses, the God of the Lamb, the God of salvation. In the midst of people worshipping false gods and a world in chaos and destruction, here are people who get it and who've gotten it, gotten their salvation, and are living it out to the glory of God. And who are these people? These people are those who have been victorious over the beast. Verse two, victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now Revelation's full of this kind of imagery, isn't it? We're not imagining a real kind of cartoon beast, uh, but what we are is the alternate Jesus, the false God, the Lord that people turn to. Effectively, anything that draws your attention and love and affection and time and commitment that is not Jesus is some kind of manifestation of this beast. But these people have not done that. They have not worshipped that beast. They've not been sucked into his systems of, of, of economy and whatever it is. They don't carry his number. They are marked as the Lamb's own. And they stand at the edge of that sea of glass, which we learn from the edge of Revelation, is before the throne of God. They're almost kind of spectating as the throne of God stands there and brings judgment on the rest of the world. They say, we get it. We haven't worshipped. We're not, we're not part of the judgment that's coming because we're part of the praise that's now and eternal. It's a good question for us, I think, when we see all this worship in the book of Revelation, which is, 
How's our life as worshippers? Are we worshippers of God? Do we sing the song of Moses and the Lamb? I'm not just talking about singing on Sunday. That, that's great. That's, that's one part of it. And uh, it's a great opportunity to fill our lungs and lift our voices as best we can together. But this worship is actually whole of life worship. This is whole of life worship. And I think that's tricky, not only because we're so easily drawn away to other things and to give our time and attention to other things, but also because the whole of life is, frankly, often mundane. It's routine, you know? It's brushing your teeth and tying your shoelaces and catching a train. How is that worship? Well, we can honour and glorify God in every part of our lives. Every moment of our lives can bring praise to him. Let me just give you a few ways that that might happen in your life, in my life, in all of our lives. First thing is, we are worshippers of God when we cut out sin. Not sinning glorifies God. Not sinning glorifies him so when we live in faithful obedience and this is actually an active thing okay not sinning is something that you have to actively do you have to develop self-discipline and you have to choose a path of righteousness and holiness not indulging our own lusts and desires but honoring and glorifying him by putting those things aside for some of us it might mean addressing besetting sins those things that have got their hooks in us and that we keep getting drawn back into. You know, we read of the porn epidemic in our culture. But there's more than that, isn't there? There's things like just ignoring the poor person on the street, walking past them, living generally selfishly, Presenting well, sure, when we meet our Christian friends and knowing how to talk the talk and come to Bible study and all the things that we all love doing, but not giving ourselves to the discipline of loving and caring for others, sharing the good news of Jesus with them, turning away again from those things that have their hooks in us that drag us down. All of this really, in a way, is kind of part of worshipping the beast, giving allegiance and attention and heart to something that's not Jesus. Few people kind of transparently and openly worship Satan, okay? We don't see a lot of that. Uh, there are occults and there are, I take it, sort of satanic groups that do this kind of stuff. It's kind of the stuff of horror movies, really, but it's probably out there somewhere. But that's not what's really being spoken about exclusively in the book of Revelation. It's really just people who give their lives, their hearts, their attention to anything other than Jesus and God. People who are drawn away by materialism, by the shopping center. People whose first investment is in, uh, the first thing they think about each day is in, uh, where am I gonna get my $8 coffee? Because uh, that's the most important thing in my life. That's what I wake up to celebrate and give my, my, my money, my time, my attention to. Now, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. I'm not saying don't get a nice coffee, 
But I'm saying, where's your worship? Where's your heart? Where's your attention? What's the most important thing? These are all different presentations of the beast. Anything that takes the place of God. It's possible that um, most people are not really uh, conscious in some cases that this is what they're doing, worshipping the beast, to use the language of Revelation. It's just that they think that fulfilment's elsewhere. I think what's most important in life is related to my fulfilment, and that comes through you know, having some kind of financial security, uh, having certain family relationships, having a certain relationship with the state, having certain experiences in my life. They're the things that really matter. It's not that I'm consciously rejecting Jesus, but what I'm doing is stacking my diary, stacking my mind, stacking my bank book so that it's all pointed at other stuff. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want our lives to revolve around anything other than Jesus. Sure, have a great holiday. Sure, enjoy a nice meal with friends. Sure, celebrate your family. They're blessings and gifts, precious from the Lord, but they are not the meaning of life. They're not the most important thing. They are not what everything should revolve around. Sometimes, if we're honest, we do know that the things we're doing are actually not about Jesus. Sometimes we know when we're just that little bit selfish, that little bit rude to someone, that little bit dismissive about the call of the need of the church for our service. We just think, ah, I don't want to think about that. I just press it down because it's inconvenient, it gets in the way. It it, it frustrates the plans that I had for my day or my week or my life. I just push it down because I don't want to have to face the call of giving myself to Jesus completely in every way. Because if I have to reevaluate that, I might have to reevaluate my priorities. I might have to change what I'm doing with my day or my week or my life. And I'd rather just have Jesus fit conveniently into where I want him in my life rather than where he wants me and his plans. Challenging, challenging stuff. Ultimately though, we know, don't we, if we're followers of Jesus, that he's gotta be the center of everything. And ultimately we know at our best, when we give ourselves to him, when we say yes to his plans and embrace him, it's not actually a burden, it's not a chore. We don't feel like we're missing out. We don't feel like, oh, this is so frustrating and, and, and something that is a ball and chain around my, my ankle. We feel, this is real life and I love it and I want to praise him now just as I will on the last day stand before the throne praising him forever. That's what I want to do today. So the other thing we can do is, as worship is just actually increase our, pra- uh, our praise. Uh, praise him more in the classic ways we think of praise. Sing to him more. Sometimes at church it can feel a bit like I'm not in my voice at this time of morning or you know, I'm not as good a singer as the people around me. Let it out. Sing praises to God. He, he doesn't mind if you're not in tune. That's okay. It sounds beautiful to him. Let it out. But you know, sing in the, sing in the car. Sing in the shower. Sing while you're doing the dishes. Make it your habit and part of the rhythm of your life that my mind just goes to exalting him. I just want to praise him. I just want his worship to be on my lips. 
That's what I do. That's part of who I am. Talk him up as well. That's part of praising him, worshipping him. When we're with each other after church or some other time, it's, it's always good to say what's happening in your week and how you've been going. Great to care for each other that way. But let's also encourage each other in praise. How is it with you and the Lord? Has he been great in your life today? Uh, has he helped you with your struggles and your burdens? Are you coming to him in prayer? Can I pray with you? Let's make our conversations spiritual and about him. That is, if you're a Christian believer, other Christians aren't just your friends. They're your sisters and brothers in the faith. So let's share that faith all the time. And let's do that with unbelievers too. If you're not a Christian believer, I hope that Christians gnaw your ear about Jesus and you don't feel Bible bashed. You feel like there's something in this. This guy means a lot to you guys. It seems to be important. Maybe I want to know more. We need to share more. We need to share more. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's talk him up and let's give thanks more. Make lists of things to thank him for. I think it's a great thing to do. Just make lists of all that you can thank him for and thank him and praise him. For all the blessings of the gospel, the message of deliverance, of salvation, but of all the other things that we're so blessed with in our lives as well. Even as at the same time we are coming before him with our burdens, our sorrows, our griefs, our hurts, our needs, our traumas and torments and wrestles. Yes, of course, bring that. And bring our thanks as well. My hope is that as we live lives of worship, we again won't feel this is a chore or a burden or a miserable plan B life, but we'll actually find this is the life that I'm meant to live and it's rich and it's full and it's true and it's heading to where we're going and I want to be part of that. Well, the, the alternative in Revelation 15 and 16 to being a worshipper of Jesus, a worshipper of God using the song of Moses and the Lamb is to be someone who's under the judgment of God. Uh, chapter 15 verse 5 through to 16 21 really focus on this judgment the, the plagues of God's wrath in these sort of bowls that are being tipped out on the earth now, I'm not going to go through all this in detail right now there's a lot there I do encourage you to read over it study it and reflect upon, uh, reflect upon it what I want to do is just give us a few key points that might help us as we consider these judgments of God in the Bible you can't escape the judgment of God in the Bible it's there uh, but there's good ways for us to understand it that help us in our worship, actually. So let me say a few things. Uh, a few, uh, first thing, really, is just to help us think well about this. The plagues that we read about in Exodus 15 and 16, if you know your Bible a bit, you might realize that they're parallel to the plagues we read about in the book of Exodus. We spoke about Moses delivering people from under the slavery of Pharaoh to freedom. And how does that happen? Through a series of 10 plagues. Well, the book of Revelation is kind of conscious of that. As John wrote it, as Jesus gave him this message, it's picking up on Exodus and the plagues there. So if you understand what's going on in the plagues in Exodus, you'll understand more of what's going on in the plagues in Revelation. In Exodus, the plagues were against Pharaoh for their, his stubborn refusal to let God's people go. And Pharaoh has this ongoing 
high-handed rejection of God. And it's the same here in Revelation. These judgments are coming against people who have an ongoing high-handed rejection of God. That's who the judgment is upon. Please notice as well that God's judgment is not for nothing. It's not for nothing. It's not that God just says, I just feel like letting my anger out on some innocent people and just smashing them because I'm actually deep down mean and cruel. That's not what's going on. God's judgment is for sin, for oppression, for wrongdoing, for things that are actually bad in the world. It's against people who have rejected the Lord Jesus, who have rejected all the God, the good that God's given them, or at least rejected God as the giver of that good. People who've given their lives to worship something else in this creation, not to worship the Creator. People who don't want God's mercy and love to shape their lives. People who actually say, that's not part of who I am. A person who receives the love and mercy of God, that's not me. This is actually, believe it or not, sometimes it's hard for us to realize, but this is actually justice. This is God's justice. It's the true and right consequence that come to people for the choices they've made for the ways they live. And it comes to people who have not accepted the forgiveness that's there for everyone in the Lord Jesus. We all want justice. I think we are hardwired for justice. Even little children from a very young age, they know when that's not fair. That's justice crying out. Make it right. Balance the scales. Now, kids sometimes have a distorted picture of what that actually should look like, but nonetheless, there's this core conviction that some things aren't fair. Some things need to be set right. And we all know that, don't we? Even as we grow up. We know some things are horrid in this world. There's all kinds of horrendous sin. And whether the world calls it sin or not, that's what it is. Even in that little video we saw from IJM, you got glimpses of it. And you want justice. I want justice. I want that put right. I want the people who are doing those things sorted out. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, we have... uh, Let me just read those couple of verses to you. Revelation 6, 9 to 11, earlier on, we just have this little glimpse of souls under the altar. In heaven there seems to be an altar. We heard about that actually in our chapters today. And when John, who's writing this, sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, these are Christian martyrs. In heaven, under the altar, there are Christian martyrs, people who've died for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the martyrs say this, they call out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? We were slaughtered because we followed Jesus. We're now awaiting the final consummation of all things and your judgment, Lord, how long until you judge them for slaughtering us, for killing us? And the book of Revelation says, now the time has come. In chapters 15 to 16, all of those wrongs are being set right. The child abuse, the murder of believers, the person who stole your wallet. Every big thing, every little thing, God is going to judge 
and balance the scales and everyone will be in line to face that. But hang on, it's heavy to think that, isn't it? Because when you start getting away from the big sins, because I haven't, I, I haven't murdered anyone, uh, I haven't done all those kind of big category A sins, but have I been selfish? Have I been rude? Have I lied? H- have I been uh, a kind of less than wanting to give myself to the needs of others? Yeah, all the time. And if judgment is coming on everyone, then that's actually troubling for me too. But, but, please notice this, judgment is meant to lead to repentance. Judgment is meant to lead to repentance. It's very clear again in these verses. What we see here is God's judgment being poured out on the earth and people still refusing to turn back to God. God's saying for all the things you've done wrong, judgment's coming, but there's a chance to return and they go, I don't want to come back. And you think, what are you doing? Look at verse 9 of chapter 16. They were seared by the intense heat that they cursed the name of God, who had control over the plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. They refused to turn back, even in the midst of being judged. Verse 11. They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent for what they'd done. Yeah, we're copying judgment for what we've done, but I refuse to say sorry. Stuff you, God. Yeah, sure, I've done this wrong stuff, but the last thing I'm going to do is turn back to you. But this this is not how it's meant to be. That judgment is meant to make us go, oh, Lord, I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's the motivation for God in judging, not just to pay back, but to see people turn back. And yet some people never do, like Pharaoh in the Exodus story who hardened his heart against God even through the plagues and still went and wanted to pursue and capture the Israelites. I don't want to give a definitive explanation of suffering in the world and trials in the world and the judgments and burdens that people face ultimately from the hand of God. But I want to say a part of it is this. A part of it is this. Partly that judgment comes because the world is so stubborn and so broken and God will judge it. But part of it is meant to turn us back to him. Part of it, part of it is meant to want, turn us to long for a better world, to long for a better relationship with the creator, to long to be right in the eyes of the one who sets all things right. Part of it is not meant for us just to be like a little kid saying that's not fair and blaming other people, but to say, I'm part of the problem. It's not fair because of me. Part of the suffering and the wrong in the world is, is, is what is due to my action and my behavior and my heart. And the judgment's meant to turn us to realize that and to come back to God. Part of the reason the judgment doesn't end now that all the mess in the world doesn't finish now is because God is giving people time to return, time to come back. One day it will end. One day there'll be no more chances to return. But for now we have that chance. Last thing is this. The bowls in Exodus 15, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Revelation 15 and 16 actually parallel the trumpets that you might have read about in Revelation 8 to 11. So Revelation 8 to 11 has these trumpets of judgment and now in 15 and 16 we have bowls of judgment. 
And the parallel is quite strong. In both cases we have earth, sea, river, sun, darkness, the Euphrates River, judgment and hailstorm. So it's got the same thing again. It's that cycle I told you about in chapters 6 to 16. We're seeing the same thing again. But there's a little bit of difference here. Now the judgment is complete. Now the judgment ends. In the trumpets we see this funny thing where the judgment impacts a third of all that it touches. A third, a third, a third. Now, in 15 and 16, this is the final. This is everything. Judgment is complete and wrapped up. What I think this means is God will be bringing partial and incomplete judgments all the time up to the end. That chance for people to turn away, that that punishing of sin and that chance for people to turn back to God will keep happening, but there will come a day when judgment will be complete. And you need to know that if you haven't repented by that day, the time will be up. It's time to turn back now. And if you're secure in Jesus, you trust the Lord, you need to know that all the suffering and struggles and mess and trials of this world will end. They will come to an end. This is not ongoing always. It'll all be finished up. And the language here, it's captured in the idea of the fall of Babylon, the destruction of that that city of Babylon. Babylon symbolises everything that's opposed to God, the civilization opposed to God, right back from the Tower of Babel to Babylon itself to Rome in the first century when Revelation was written to whatever it is now that stands as civilization against God. That will be destroyed, the end of Babylon. And actually, all of this should again remind us and point us back to the cross of Christ. The destruction of Babylon that we read about at the end, verse 17, we hear this loud voice coming from the throne throne saying, it is done, which has got to take your mind back to the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross saying, it is finished. Judgment for believers ends on Christ's cross, not in the final destruction of Babylon. Babylon is given the cup of God's wrath, verse 19, and we've got to remember the Lord Jesus taking the cup of God's wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane, drinking it to the dregs for those of us who put their trust in him. There's a final judgment coming, but even this points us back to the great judgment of sin in the cross of Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, as the language of the New Testament often uses, those of us who are in Christ, our sins are judged in him too. It's all been taken care of on the cross. So on the last day when all these judgments are complete and when Babylon is destroyed, the civilization that stands against him, well, we'll just be there worshipping and praising because our judgment has been dealt with by the Lamb whose praise we sing in those songs, those songs of the Saviour and and who we worship now with lives that are all about glorifying the one who's brought us to the end of all history and, and for whom all, in whom all the judgment has been taken away and turned into praise and worship. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we don't like reading about judgment and yet we would hate to think of a world where there was none, where everyone got away with everything and there was never justice dealt out. But we thank you, Lord, that the end of all things is not only judgment because judgment has already been taken by Jesus for those who follow him. 
Our end is worship. Worship of the Lamb. And we pray that even now, as we anticipate that time and we see judgment and horrible things all around us, we would train ourselves as worshippers for the last day when we'll stand before your throne praising you forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.